0: We're finishing a series we called Reconciliation, okay? And we're finishing today the third week in that series on reconciliation. We spent the first two weeks looking at how we get reconciled to God, which then prompts us to be reconciled to others. And this morning, finally, we're gonna look at extending that reconciliation out to our world. Now, I don't think anybody watching online or anybody in this room would doubt the fact that our world could use a little bit of reconciliation. Come on, help me now. Here's the truth about all of us. In between you and me and in between you and other people, there is always some space. And reconciliation challenges us to do one of two things with that space— You can either use that space to continue to create distance or reconciliation prompts us to close that space, to have a coming together and to create a connectedness and a restoration of relationships the way Jesus did it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul wrote an amazing passage on our ministry of reconciliation. And he says a few things in these verses appropriate for what we're going to be looking at this morning. And the first thing he covers is what the motivation is for us to be reconciled to our world. And he says this in verse 14, it is because Christ's love compels us. See, what we have experienced with Christ personally then propels us to look for places in our world and among people where we can carry that ministry of reconciliation. To those folks out in our world who don't know it. Yeah. He didn't say you're ministries of a political party. He didn't say you're ministers of some particular view you have, but the relationship to close the space between people and God. If you keep that focus, it won't bug you as much about the difference opinion of people on all kinds of issues. And remember this, issues divide, purpose unites we don't rally around an issue. This is not an issue-driven church. It is a purpose-driven church. It is inclusive. Everybody's welcome. See, anything's possible, and it probably will. Who knows? This could be your year. This could be something amazing for you, and it usually is with people who don't think they have a chance in Guyana for it happening. So God says, this kind of reconciliation causes us not to live primarily, just for us. See, then he goes on to say that God has committed to you and me the ministry of reconciliation as Christ's ambassadors. See, when a country has an ambassador, that ambassador is sent to a foreign country to represent and reflect exactly what the government that sent them told them to do, to take that to another country and culture. So in a, in a sense, you and I are ambassadors of Christ. I'm not ambassadors of a Democrat or a Republican. I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I'm not an ambassador of Anglo-Caucasian, Hispanic, Asian, or African-American. I'm an ambassador of Christ. What is hard to understand about that? See, I don't care about the rest of that. It's about what Jesus would say and what Jesus would do. And if that smacks your political party in the face, suck it up. If that smacks your race in the face, suck it up. If you don't like it, get over it. Accept what Jesus said. He's the one I'm trying to please. You can't please everybody unless you serve ice cream. You can't do it. Come on. So as Christ ambassadors, we're going to look this morning at how we seriously take that job as church members, believers, in restoring, attempting to restore the world around us. So it says in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14, listen to this. It says that God devises ways so that a banished person does not remain estranged or banished from God. See, God, God has devised ways to get you. He wants you. He loves you. See, that word devised in the Hebrew carries the connotation of inventing new ways. It carries the connotation almost of the word devious, that God is sneaky in trying to come up with ways to close the space between him and you or between uh, uh, other people and him. So this morning, I want to go through a passage of Scripture that looks at this question of reconciliation and how far out we have to go to minister to our neighbors. Then I want to give you a brief story, and then I want to imagine how you and I might be seismic echoes of reconciliation to our world that we have personally experienced ourselves. I want to start with Luke chapter 10. By the way, you may not know this. But in the South, Luke was the, was the name of a lot of people who were bootleggers. Luke and the boys. That's my middle name. <laughs> no wonder I'm questionable. <laughs> so if you, <laughs> if, you, if you grew up in the church, you've heard this a lot in Sunday school. But I'm here to tell you this morning, folks, that this is not a children's story. When you begin to understand what Jesus was attempting to do with these Hebrew listeners and the way he told this story, it is at least PG-13, at least. So when you and I grew up in church, we heard it as the story of the Good Samaritan, so sweet and precious, put on flannel graph. It's very different from that, though, in reality. Starting in verse 25, we're going to pick up the story, and it says that an expert in the Mosaic law came to ask Jesus a question. Now, that was not unusual. That was a common practice in Jesus' day. Jesus, as a rabbi, was out teaching, and different experts in the law, that's the Mosaic law, and different religious leaders would stop when they saw a crowd gathered around a rabbi, and they would all pose different questions to him. Now listen to what the author, Luke, writes about the motivation that prompted this expert in the Mosaic law questioning Jesus, because it would not have been apparent to the people who were listening. So it goes on to say, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, at face value, that seems like a simple question, but there was something else going on behind it. And basically, this expert in the law was trying to test Jesus and find out if he would agree with him and other religious leaders of the day if it was true that if you were loyal to the Mosaic law and followed the letter of that law, it would guarantee you reconciliation with God and eternal life. Can I pause to interject? Not a snowball's chance in Gehenna. But that was the thought of the day. Okay, don't touch this, don't drink that. Don't do this, don't don't wear this. Don't mix these two fabrics. Don't walk more than this far on the Sabbath day. Don't draw water. It never stopped. Taste, touch, smell, whatever. Drink, what meat, food. It was a nightmare. Nobody ever kept it. So get the picture here. The man asked this question because he and other religious leaders had been way uncomfortable listening to Jesus turn the teaching of the religious leaders of that day upside down. He was rocking the boat. Now he's sinking the boat. And this day, he was telling them that this law business, guys, is not A set of rules is not the way you get reconciliation with God. So Jesus, knowing this, when he presented this with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus comes back in Columbo kind of style and doesn't give an answer, but he returns the volley back to the expert in the law with another question. And so Jesus said to him, well, hey, Sparky, what's written in the Mosaic law? How do you read it? So the expert in the law replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, even on a cold day, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he replies with the right answer, and he says, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Then Jesus says, do this, and you will live. Now, that should be the end of the story, but it wasn't. And again, Luke gives us a little insight into what's going on in this man's heart. It says about this expert who asked the question, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, again, in that day, the majority of religious leaders would define their neighbor, people do it right in church, as people who looked like them, acted like them, voted like them, lived just like they did what's changed? Not much. So there was a real narrow socially accepted circle of social strata and the predominant Jewish thinking was my love for my neighbor extends only as far as my family and my people and people who are just like me. And so guess what? You can go around town anywhere, USA or the world, and the people in those churches primarily are people just like us. You go to each one. Maybe it's an upper-class ultra-conservative. Maybe it's a uh, a lower-class minority-driven liberal whatever, another one based on uh, Hispanic or Asian or nationality or or a Nigerian church. You won't find that in the Bible, but boy, we got a really good plan of messing up God's deal. I mean, we can screw it up really bad and make something simple hard. It's amazing we can go to heaven. I, I'm telling you, it, it really is. You know, Jesus gave like 10 command. I mean, the, the Lord gave like 10 commandments and the Pharisees added 750 to it, literally. It, so you can, you can jump to different churches and figure out, oh, they added that one or oh, they subtracted that one. Or this church is primarily more wealthy, upper middle class or wealthy conservative. This one is mostly what, you name it. Am I telling you the truth or not? Certainly it is. It's hard to find one that's inclusive, that is not based on some issue, but based on purpose. Issues divide people. Purpose unites people. Don't you build a life or a church on an issue. We build on Christ. He's the solid rock. He's our foundation. I'm not building on a political party or on a race or on a color. I'm building it on Jesus. So anybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. And you're going to see that's exactly what Jesus is going to get at. So instead of giving this expert in the law an answer, Jesus decides to tell a story. And in this story, he uses a typical Hebrew framework that uses three different pieces of action. And they are very simple three words, come, do, and go. You got that? Come, do, and go. So in this story, a participant of the story would come into the story then he or she would do something, then they would leave and go out of the story. It is in the doing part that would be the meat of the teaching the rabbi was trying to share. So keep that in mind as we start this story, which you would be, you'd say, "Oh, I know all about that story. So he says in the scripture, this expert in the law, and who is my neighbor? Jesus said, let me tell you something. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of carjackers, robbers. Let me pause a minute. From Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho's down in the Dead Sea. I've been on it twice. There's a temperature change of 30 degrees between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea or Jericho. So like people in LA will go to Palm Springs in the in the winter to get warm, the, 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 the Jewish people in Jericho would, I mean, Jerusalem would go down to Jericho to warm up 30 degree temperature, 17 miles down. And Jericho, the Dead Sea area, is the lowest place below sea level on planet Earth. Got the picture? I thought you'd be interested, but I guess I was wrong. Okay. Everybody listening to this story would, would find this very familiar. A 17 mile road that went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Very narrow, very twisty, very rocky. Lots of places for carjackers to hide. It was very predictable then that if you were traveling alone, you had a high percent chance of being apprehended by these thieves and robbers. Jesus says that when he went down this road, he fell into the hands of robbers. He goes on to say, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and left him half dead. Now, here's another important little clue in the story. Jesus has purposely given a detail to let us know the man who was beaten severely had no clothes which were taken, which means to you and I or anybody walking up, we would have no external clues as to what social strata that man came from. The next three characters of the story who are going to come, do, and go, had no way of knowing if this guy fell into the category of acceptable people they should be compassionate to and be a neighbor to. So people are listening to this story, and they're leaning forward, and Jesus says in the next two words what they're all thinking. They're thinking the hero of the story has now come into the story. Here it comes. And Jesus said, a priest happened to be going down the same road, verse 31. Now, what was typical was when priests were done with their priestly duties in the temple in Jerusalem on a Saturday, that's their Sabbath, they would leave either that day or early the next morning, riding a donkey to go down that road to Jericho where their weekly home was away from the hustle and bustle of the big city. The priest or anybody of that level would not be walking, but would be riding because again, it was a dangerous place. So the priest, having just fulfilled his religious duties, happens to be going down the same way. And it says, and when he saw the man, this is the guy beaten, laying naked in the, in the road, come. So he sees him. See, here's the come part of, he came, he saw. What will he do? And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, we wouldn't notice that without knowing the culture and geography. But when Jesus said he passed by on the other side, folks would have snickered or laughed who were listening to this because there wasn't a road to Jericho. It was a small path for your donkey to get on and that meant by to pass by on the other side was impossible. It would mean the priest had to lift the donkey's head for his donkey to lift his feet to pass over the man beaten, naked, and left for dead laying on the road. You couldn't go to the other side. You went over the guy, all right? So the people who are listening are a little shocked by the hero they thought was the hero who doesn't apparently do anything, and in fact, he comes But he does nothing, and he goes. So my guess is the priest was thinking on this 17-mile road. It's pretty isolated. Nobody's going to see the choice I made. Nobody will know whether I choose to show compassion or not. I'm just going to keep going. Nobody will ever be the wiser. So Jesus goes on in his story to introduce the second character. And they're thinking, well, this must be the hero. And he says, so too a Levite came. Here's the come. And I'm guessing at this point, the crowd was a little bit relieved because the Levite at least is one of the 12 tribes of Israel who served under the priest. Now Jesus is going to make, they think, the secondary character, the hero in this story, somebody who would stop and help this poor man and show him what it meant to be a neighbor. But apparently it doesn't happen because it says, and when the Levite came to the place and saw this man, he passed by on the other side. So they're not completely sure where Jesus is going with this story, but I can tell you right now, it ain't good. Not to them. Okay. They're not going to be happy about this. They know Jesus is telling a story to answer the question, who is my neighbor I'm responsible to? And how far out in the circles of your life and mine do I have to go before God considers me having done enough to take care of my neighbor and show the ministry of reconciliation? So being shocked and surprised that the priest and the Levite were not the heroes, the majority of people listening would have been lowering their expectation and figuring, well, the third character that Jesus is going to introduce, he's going to be the hero. And he's probably going to be like Plumber Joe. We've seen it in politics. Just an ordinary, hardworking Jewish man or woman, not high enough in status, Uh, to be a religious leader, or even one of the tribes that served in the temple, just sort of an ordinary Hebrew, who came by, saw the man on the road, and maybe helped him. The next three words in this story, I guarantee you, would have made them drop dead shock, gasp from the people who are listening in the culture of that day. And if there were parents with children, they would have clapped the hands over the ears of their children because Jesus said the hero of the story was a Samaritan, but a Samaritan. That's in verse 33. And all of a sudden their minds are blown away and they can't believe what this guy Jesus just said. So imagine for a moment, if you can in your life, who would you consider somebody you could avoid showing compassion or grace to because they are so far out of your circle, politically, socially, theologically, economically, whatever, that you would give yourself a pass on being a neighbor to them. That's what Jesus was saying to this expert in the law. The person that not only you least likely expected to be in the story, but that you would not even have imagined could be in the story. Because for Jewish people years ago, the Samaritans had been a half-breed nation who they despised, who they would go out of their way. If they were traveling from Jerusalem in the south of Israel to Judah up in the north, they'd go out of their way miles to avoid going through Samaria or crossing paths with a Samaritan. You get the picture? I mean, you talk about racism, you talk about prejudice, it's as big as it is in our day. Now Jesus is introducing him as the third character, as the hero? That'd be like introducing a Republican at a Democrat convention. What? Come out behind the curtain or just the opposite, a Democrat and a Republican. I mean, I've gotta, you've gotta feel the shock. This is like, nobody does this this is way out of culture, way out of our behavior. So here's the hero, and he's answering the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus not only says it was a Samaritan, but now that he's got the knife in, he's going to twist it over and over again. Because now where the first two characters did the come and the do and the go without doing anything except go, Jesus stops here on the Samaritan's action and gives seven do's the Samaritan did. Seven staccato repetitions of inconvenience this Samaritan went to to show compassion on this man laying in the road. And it says, when he saw him, he had pity on him and went to him. So he's closing the space between him and the wounded man. It says, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine in, which was an ancient form of antiseptic in those days. He got off his own donkey. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to a little motel. He paid the innkeeper for his care. Now, while they couldn't even believe when Jesus said, but a Samaritan, now Jesus is saying, and that Samaritan did this and did this and did this and did that. And Jesus said, That he promised to return to the innkeeper in a couple of days to reimburse him for any further expense that had been incurred. So Jesus hit the note of do over and over and over again in answer to the question, Who's my neighbor in San Antonio? Then at the end of the story, Jesus very simply lets the tension hang and he says, Very simply to the expert in the law, Okay, Sparky, which of the three do you think? was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of these hijackers. You answer the question. And the expert in the law says, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, very well said, go and do likewise. So these are the kinds of stories Jesus told that never left your mind easy to understand because you keep turning them over and over again in your thoughts. And I can guarantee you that's what this expert in the law was thinking when he walked away. What in the name of God did I just hear? It was shocking. I guarantee you, if Jesus Christ walked on this stage and spoke to you and me, he would shake up our theology, shake up our cultural trends, our prejudices, and the stuff hidden in our hearts. He would in many cases embarrass you. If he did that to his own mother and brothers and to his own staff, what makes you think he's going to walk in like you want him? He's going to come in like I want. He'll behave like I want. He'll dress like I want. That never happened. He'll come in in combat boots and stomp your prejudice into the ground. He will never come like you think he should come. He's God. He comes like he wants to come, and you and I have to suck it up or reject it. It's that simple. I remember hearing the story up at Willow Creek in Chicago of a mechanic who stumbled into that church one weekend. His life was falling apart. He was heavy into addictive behavior. He had lost his job. His wife had taken his two children and left. He was in such a crisis that it often makes you open to new messages. He came in. He sat in the back of the church and through those sermons and music over a period of time, he started to hear the story of Jesus and this compelling love of God that went to the extent of God giving up his only son, putting him on a cross to shorten the distance between the mechanic and Jesus. And he wanted that distance to get smaller and smaller. Then he got involved in a small group. The small group helped him get into an addiction recovery program. They helped him work on his resume to get interviews and get a job. They helped him with marital counseling, and his wife was starting to make steps back towards him. So his life over the course of about a year and a half had been reconciled to God and had been reconciled to his job and to his family. Then he was left with this feeling of being so compelled by the love of Christ, he wanted to reconcile a larger portion of his world. So he came to the pastor and said, you got rich people in your church, and they did. Would you mind telling them that when they get a new car, instead of selling for resale value, would they just donate the car to the church for a tax credit, and I'll get other guys like me, mechanics, in the church, we'll take those cars to auction, because they're better cars, we'll sell the one car, and we'll get back maybe four or five. Then we'll work on them, get them in great running order, and then we'll start giving them away to single moms. That church has given away over 200 cars to single moms, many of whom didn't even go to the church, and many of whom had their lives changed by a mechanic they will never meet or know about because he had his life changed. He was so grateful for the reconciliation that changed his life He was looking for ways to extend it past the circles he would normally even think about. See, I think God has given us divine imaginations, and most of all, he's given us reconciliation for us and God that should fill us up so much that the love of God compels us to ask, to whom can I extend this reconciliation? And that's a good question for all of us as we go into the new year. You're giving people good news. You're not giving them law. You're not giving them a political philosophy. You're telling them how they can close that gap between God and them through faith in what Jesus did at the cross. I can't be reconciled by the law because nobody can keep it. I can't be uh, reconciled because of my moral standing. God says your good works are as filthy rags to me. I can be reconciled by accepting Jesus and his perfect life he kept the law perfectly. He was judged for my sin on the cross, dead, buried, the wages of sin is death, and then rose from the dead. And now when I accept Jesus, the Father reckons, accounting term, reckons me to have been in Christ when he was judged and killed for sin, my sin, and then raised in new life. That's why we have baptism, to walk in newness of life that Jesus gave. So he does for me what I can't do for myself. And by the way, you don't help somebody because of who they are. You help somebody, believer, because of who you are. It's not about them. It's about who you are. Whether it's hunting for this little girl from Afghanistan, little refugee that's disappeared. What if that were your child? Would you care about getting? It wouldn't be about, well, that come from a Muslim family. What's that got to do with it? compassion doesn't know race, denomination, political party. It's mercy, compassion. And we ought to be people that have hearts that big. So this week, as you go through life, be open to a possibility of bringing a word of reconciliation, of hope, of encouragement. Be be kind to someone who's of a different faith or a different background, because you never know the possibility of changing a life forever. You never know, but we are agents of reconciliation. We want to make it easy for people to go. Listen, going to heaven is easy. Living on earth, as hard. Marriage, as hard. Raising kids, as hard. Living a dream, fulfilling a dream, a career, a job, that's hard. Going to heaven, Jesus made that easy. That's why it's called good news. I heard somebody say the other day sorry, this was a pet peeve of mine. Well, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way. Narrow Now, watch how they interpret that. Narrow meaning it's going to be really hard to get in the kingdom of God it is not. They were pluralistic. They worshiped everything. They kept the law. They built. Uh, they had other gods they worshiped. They said, wear this, don't drink this, and that'll give you access to God. Broad is the way. That was everywhere. Jesus showed up and said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. <laughs> That's the narrow way, meaning it's Jesus only. Not Jesus plus politics, Jesus plus good works, Jesus only. That's the narrow way. And God wants you to see the only hope of reconciliation with God the Father is through faith in what Jesus did for all of us as sinners. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit SummitSA.com.